miracles and healings. So there's a few gifts that we left out, particularly words of knowledge and words of wisdom. If you want to know what we think about that, then we recorded a special episode of From the Pulpit this week. You can find that on our podcast platform. It's about an hour and 10-minute conversation about the spiritual gifts of words of wisdom and words of knowledge, which are, of course, different than the general gift of wisdom and the general gift of knowledge that we all have access to. And so if you want to know a little bit more about that, and if you're wondering, do I have that gift? Then go ahead and listen to that podcast, and you'll be encouraged, I'm sure. You can find that by scanning the code and clicking the link, or you can search Revival Studios and all the big podcast platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. In this message today, I'm going to touch a sacred cow for most Pentecostals, which is the spiritual gift of tongues with interpretation and prophecy. Now, vocabulary.com defines a sacred cow as a belief, custom, or person that is so highly respected that it feels wrong to criticize or examine it, even in the face of contradictory evidence. I have a high view of these gifts, and so sometimes it feels wrong to examine or criticize them. However, we are called to be students of the word and relentlessly reform our attitudes and actions to the standard of scripture because we so easily stray from the standard, don't we? And so we always want to bring ourselves back. We always want to center ourselves on the scriptures. And so we're going to touch this sacred cow. We're going to criticize it. We're going to examine it. And we're going to come away uh, feeling so encouraged about these wonderful gifts that are available to us today. In this message, we're going to examine the gift of tongues and prophecy by looking at what the scriptures say alone, what the text says, and that's it. We don't need to go beyond the text. A lot of what you've heard about these gifts in particular over the years goes beyond the text. Search tongues on YouTube, search prophecy on YouTube, you'll find a lot of results, a lot of teaching that goes beyond the text. Today, we won't go beyond the text. We will not go beyond what is written because we don't need to. We have all we need right here. Everything God wants us to know about this gift He's written clearly for us in the scriptures. Today we're going to apply the golden rule of hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? It's the science of Bible interpretation. And so we're going to apply the golden rule of hermeneutics. The golden rule of hermeneutics is when plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. When what is written in the scriptures is plain and obvious, don't go looking for secret meanings. Don't go looking for other interpretations. We will seek the plain sense interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14 today. We're not going to read our experience into the text. That's called eisegesis. It's bad hermeneutics. You'll always come away with a bad interpretation when you read your experience or you read your opinions into the Bible. It's easy to do. Now, you have to delete 
the middle part of a lot of verses or the end of a lot of verses to make it say what you want it to say, but we've all heard preaching and teaching over the years where people have read their experience or their opinions into the Bible. That's not a good thing to do. It's bad practice. It results in false teaching. Error always begets error. Error never gives birth to truth. Error almost always gives birth to twins. We're not going to read our experience. That doesn't mean my twins are a mistake. Where are you? No, no. Not at all. Unplanned? Yes. But a mistake? Absolutely not. I forgot you were up here. I love you. Instead, we will read out of the text exactly what it says. That's called exegesis, rather. We will extract from the Bible what it says using this golden rule. Keep in mind, our experiences don't explain Scripture. The Scriptures explain our experiences. And if and when we experience something that's not clearly explained in Scripture, we don't build theology or doctrine on it. We've all experienced things that aren't clearly laid out in scripture. We've all practiced things in the public gathering that aren't clearly explained here. But what we don't do when they're not clearly explained is build doctrine on it. We just say it happened, it's good, it's of God, but we'll leave it there. When it comes to these gifts and how to use them, there is a lot of explanation. And so we are going to read out of this text exactly what it says. Also, we have to remember this. There is only one right interpretation for any scripture. That doesn't mean I always have the right one or you always have the right one, but there is only one right interpretation. There's only one intended meaning by the author, capital A, God. This book is his exhale. Paul called or told Timothy that it was the theonoustos. It was God-breathed and inspired. God has one intended meaning for every scripture Every passage, every chapter, every verse, every line. It's our privilege to seek that out. And we will come away with the incorrect, and we can come away with the correct interpretation when we rely on the spirit of truth to teach us. Now, to be clear, there are many ways to apply to our individual lives the one interpretation. But there is only one way for all of us to interpret the text. And it is spiritual maturity, as we learned about last week, that allows us to be corrected by the text, to radically return to it and relentlessly reform what we think and do to conform to its standards. Spiritual maturity allows us to do that. If we have wrongly interpreted a text, we must be willing to reform our attitudes and actions to conform to this standard. Just because you've had a bad belief for a long time doesn't make it true. This is the true objective standard. We reform our lives to this. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to define these gifts, the gift of tongues with interpretation and the gift of prophecy. And after we determine what the gifts are, we're going to look to 1 Corinthians 14 to teach us how to use the gift in the public gathering. There's very few gifts that we've talked about today that come with instruction. 
However, the spiritual gift of tongues with interpretation, the spiritual gift of prophecy, and the spiritual gift of teaching come with a lot of explanation. And we would do well to read the instruction manual, right, ma'am? Any men listening? We would do well to listen to the instruction manual, to read it and to follow it, right? Good. Now, here's what I'm not doing today. I'm not here to tell you how to use this gift when you're on your own. I'm simply here to teach you what the Bible says about using these gifts in the public meeting meeting, when there are outsiders and unbelievers present. And I hope that there are always outsiders and unbelievers present in our meeting. We are evangelicals, aren't we? We do want those who are on the outside to come in and be part of us. So we always want outsiders and unbelievers present, which means these rules always apply. Defined tongues with interpretation. The word tongues is best translated as human languages. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, it says that the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in other tongues. When the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the first time the gift of tongues is mentioned in the New Testament, in the Bible. And so we apply the law of first mention. If you want to know what something is, go back to the first time it was ever mentioned and start from there. And so we're going to go back to the first time tongues is mentioned. And when the people who were in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost from all over the world, when they were in Jerusalem that day and they heard the people in the upper room speaking in tongues, what did they say? How is it that we hear them speaking in our own language. That word is glossa. Literally, the tongue and the syllables and words that the tongue can form. How is it, they said, that we, people from all over the world, can hear those Jews in that upper room speaking in our languages Foreign languages to them, languages that they don't know. How is it that we can hear them speaking in our language? And later they say, how is it that we can hear them speaking the works and wonders of God in our own dialect? Not just language, but dialect, accent, slang words and phrases that were common in that day. When they heard the people in the upper room prophesying in a different language, they heard the works and wonders of God spoken in their own language and dialect. The law of first mention leads us to this conclusion and this conclusion only, that tongues is first and foremost the ability to prophesy in a language which is unknown to the speaker but known to the listener. Now beyond that, Speaking in tongues is the supernatural ability to pray in the language of heaven. You probably heard it called a heavenly language or the language of angels. Beyond what it first and foremost is, it is also the ability to pray in the language of heaven. This gift may also include, and I believe it does, the ability to masterfully translate the Bible 
from the ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic to other languages so that everyday ordinary people like you and me might learn the exact meaning of the scriptures from its original language and earliest manuscripts. We don't have to learn Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic to read the word of God. People have used this gift of interpretation masterfully to translate our or the Holy Scriptures into our language so that we can know what God has spoken. Now, of course, all these gifts come with a warning, and this is my warning. I think that though I hold a high opinion of the gift of tongues, I believe that too much can be and has been made of this gift. The early church fathers didn't make much of this gift. In fact, they spoke very little about the gift of tongues. And the New Testament um, uh, writers, no other, sorry, New Testament writer even mentions tongues or how to use it. It's only the Apostle Paul and it's only the church in Corinth that mentions the gift and needs instruction as to how to use it. Why did Paul feel the need to instruct the Corinthians how to use it? Because they were misusing it. They were the messed up church. Of all the churches that Paul planted, the Corinthians got the most stuff wrong. And Paul writes them and corrects so much of their stuff because they were getting it wrong. And they were getting the gift of tongues with interpretation wrong. The gift of tongues and interpretation was supposed to be an evangelistic tool. It was supposed to happen outside of the public gathering. But the Corinthians loved doing it so much that they brought it into their corporate worship. But they were misusing it and abusing it. And a lot of confusion was taking place. And so Paul writes them to teach them how to use it. They made too much of it, I think. And so Paul had to write them to tell them, hey, guys. This is how you do it. For many, tongues has become an idol, a shibboleth, a sacred cow. For others, tongues has been uh, manipulated or counterfeit, counterfeited. Christianity is not the only religion that has ecstatic speech. Every other religion in the world has a group of people within it that experience some type of ecstasy. And from that comes out of them some type of language or babble. That's not what I'm saying we're doing. I'm just saying that ecstatic speech is not limited to Christianity. Satan always counterfeits what is genuine. Very few charismatic churches, this is another warning, very few charismatic churches practice tongues within the parameters set out in Scripture. A lot of charismatic churches deliberately obey the scripture, disobey rather the Scriptures on this issue. They deliberately say, I don't like what the Bible says about this, so I'm going to set it aside and I'm not going to listen to it. Now, if anybody did that with anything else in Scripture, we'd all get upset with them and we'd all tell them you're wrong. But for so many of us, we do that very same thing with what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. We say, I don't really like that, so I'm going to sit it over here and I'm going to deliberately disobey it. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that today. And then here's the biggest warning sign. This is the most serious one. Too many Christians, too many churches, too many denominations forbid tongues altogether. Too many denominations say that gift already ceased. 
I don't believe that. We, we talked about that already in this series. We are continuationists. We believe that all the gifts have continued. And they'll continue until the perfect comes. When the perfect comes, we won't need a lot of these gifts. The only three that will remain are faith, hope, and love. The other ones will cease. But too many Christians, too many churches, too many denominations forbid tongues altogether, which itself is defiance of a clear command in Scripture. Do you have this gift? Well, do you have a prayer language? Are there occasions in your private prayer time when you communicate with God on a soul level, a, a level that is too deep for the words that you know? Do you communicate with him in a way that unburdens you and edifies you when you pray in this prayer language? Have you ever had a prophetic word that was given through you in a language that was foreign to you? Have you ever interpreted the prophetic word given through another person in a language that was foreign to you? Do you have the ability to learn or master languages easier, easier than most people? Do things like Bible translation and Bible teaching in multiple languages to reach people from as many nations as possible, do those things matter a great deal to you? And finally, are you burdened for multicultural ministry, global missions, and reaching the nations for Christ? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then you have this gift. So use it. Let's talk about prophecy. We'll go quick because I want to take the time that's left to us to go through 1 Corinthians. Let's talk about prophecy, defined. Like a mail delivery person who does not write or edit the mail, but simply collects it and delivers it, so too the prophetic calling combines two ministries. First, those with the gift of prophecy receive God-given messages directly from God. Second, they speak those God-given messages by writing or by speaking to the people to whom they are sent. And people with the prophetic calling also expect an obedient response to God from the people who hear the message that is spoken or written. The primary job of the prophetic gift is to prepare people for the real future. Not a fake future, not an ideal future, but the real future. People with a prophetic gifting more easily spot compromise in the church. They more easily spot sin and error. People with the prophetic gifting desire immediate change and action for the glory of God. People with a prophetic gifting tend to be bold, very sensitive to sin, and place a very high value on biblical behavior. People with a prophetic gifting tell the truth, no matter the cost, even if it comes at great personal cost to them. Now, there's some confusion about the gift of prophecy, much like the spiritual gift of apostleship, which we talked about in a previous episode, there is both the office of prophet and the gifting of prophecy. The office of prophet is limited to a few people, and those people are known as the biblical prophets. 
people that hold the office of prophet have their names in this book. Their names are things like Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah. They have writings contained within the closed revelation of Scripture. God's not revealing anything new about himself. There's nothing to add to this. There's nothing to take away from it. In fact, to do either is to bring damnation upon you. The last book of the Bible itself called Revelation says at the very end of it, don't add a thing to this, don't take a thing away from it. Now that applies directly to the book of Revelation, but it applies to the whole of Scripture. There's no new revelation. God has showed us everything he's going to show us about himself until we get to eternity. Now, this is not all there is to know about God. I've heard this book called God's Baby Talk. God is an infinite God, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere at once. Our finite mind can't comprehend him only but a little. And so God has revealed to us what he wants us to know about him in this book through the prophets, the people with the office of prophet. But a lot of people can operate in the gifting of prophecy. This gift is open to as many people as the Spirit wills to distribute it. Prophecy is sometimes a revelation about the future that God intends to reveal to the entire church. Now you might be saying, aren't you contradicting yourself? You just said that God's not revealing anything else. Now you're telling me prophecy is God revealing something. Listen, God's not revealing any more about himself than he's already revealed. But in this book, he has showed us, particularly in the book of Acts chapter 11 and 21, a man by the name of Agabus who rightly predicted things that would take place in the future. God revealed it to him. He gave him a message, and Agabus delivered that message to the people. Why? To prepare them for a very real future. Agabus predicted that there would be a famine in the land. And history records, not just the Bible, but history records, that there was actually a famine. Agabus's prophecy came true as predicted. Why did God give Agabus that prophecy? To prepare the church for a time of leanness that was to come. And the church in Judea, actually, the book of Acts tells us, was affected the most by this. And so all the other churches got together and sent food and resources to the church in Judea to help them through this difficult famine. Agabus also predicted the way Paul, the apostle, would die. Why? Remember, the apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he said, I die daily. He said, I face the threat of death absolutely every day. Now imagine if you lived with the threat of death every day. Okay? How much peace would you have? How much assurance would you have? How much confidence would you have? Very little. You'd be nervous. You'd be looking around every corner. You'd be looking over your shoulder. And so Paul receives this message from Agabus to say, this is how you're going to die. So if anything but this is happening to you, don't worry about it. God's going to spare you. And so Paul gets 
has all kinds of stuff happen to him. But it's not what Agabus predicted, so he keeps on going. Until the moment when Paul is ready to be poured out like a drink offering. And then what can he say in that moment? I've run the race. I fought the good fight. And there is laid up for me a treasure. Not every one of us are going to receive uh, a message from God about how or when we're going to die. I wouldn't want that message. But Paul needed that message so that he could continue his work in ministry. And through the prophetic gifting, Agabus spoke or delivered that word to Paul. Now, of course, this gifting comes with a big red warning label. And let's talk about those warnings. All the New Testament writers warned that there would be false prophets who creep into the church and that it would be, or most people would be unaware of it because they would come in with flattering words. They would come in with deceitful words. They would come in with the appearance of being from God, but they would come in with a different gospel. They would speak on behalf of God, but it wouldn't be God who gave them the message. And so all the New Testament writers warn of false prophets who creep into the church unaware. They also give clear instructions to mark and avoid such people. So if somebody comes into the church and offers a word of prophecy, makes a prediction, for example, and that prediction doesn't come true, that person is to be marked as someone who gave a false prophecy. If it happens again, they are to be avoided. They are to be uh, kept out of the church because they will lead people astray. So they are to be marked and avoided. John, you know, the apostle that loved everybody, the love apostle, he went so far as to say about false prophets, don't even invite them in your home or give them any kind of encouragement. You ever said that about one of your kids? Don't encourage them. That's what John is saying about false prophets. Don't you dare encourage them. Don't listen to them. Don't offer them any hospitality. If they come through town and they want to preach in your church, say, move along. You can find that in John chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, if you'd like to look it up. False prophets lie about the future. The, the, the prophetic gifting is to prepare people for the real future. False prophets lie about it. They prey upon people's fears. They use flattery to puff people up or to tickle their itching ears. False prophets often work with demonic power, thus giving them the appearance of being from God, but they are not. And finally, false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing who will ultimately be exposed by the good shepherd and be punished with what the Bible says is swift destruction. Do you have this gift of prophecy? And if you have it, do you still want it? <laughs> Answer yes to some of these questions, and maybe you do. Would you rather speak God's word to others without giving much explanation? When you see sin and error, do you feel compelled to confront it? Do you tend to see more evil and sin and error and corruption than other people? Are you capable of detecting and refuting false teachings and false prophets with the word of God? Are you bold for Christ in your everyday life? Do you get frustrated when people are not obeying God or have no urgency to obey him? And finally, do you consider yourself more of a tell-it-like-it-is person rather than a love-and-mercy person? If you answered 
yes to any or all of these questions, you likely have a prophetic gifting. So for the moments that we have left, let us talk about how to practice the gift of speaking in tongues in the public gathering. Remember I said, I'm not here to tell you how to do this when you're at home, when you're in your car, when you're out for a walk, when you're alone, you, you do what is right between you and God. You use that gift how you want to. But when we're in the public gathering, we have been given some very clear parameters as to how to practice this gift. And so here they are on the screen for you. You can follow along. The verses, the references will be on the screen as well. The first rule, the first parameter that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that if the gift of tongues with interpretation is to be used in the public gathering, then it must build up all believers. The purpose of exercising the gift of tongues in a public meeting rather than evangelistically out on the street, which is what it was designed for, the purpose of exercising the gift of tongues in a public meeting is for the edification of all believers, not for personal edification. If you want personal edification, you can use this gift in your prayer closet. Verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you want the Spirit to be manifested among you in any particular way, strive that that manifestation would build up the entire church. And here Paul is talking directly about the gift of tongues with interpretation. So edification of the church is primary when using the gift in public. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you all come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue and interpretation? All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. And together this morning, in our, or sorry, this morning in our gathering, uh, we brought hymns, we brought spiritual songs, we were given words of instruction today. We're looking at the revelation of God, and maybe there may be a tongue or interpretation. Whatever happens in our meeting, it must be done for the strengthening of the church. Therefore, when the gift of tongues is properly exercised, the entire church will receive strengthening, not just the person using it. Again, if you want to edify yourself with this gift, you can do it privately on your own. Number two, there must be an interpreter present. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And verse 28 says, but if there is no one to interpret, let them each the one who speaks in a tongue, let them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. If there is no interpreter present, then the person with the gift of tongues must remain silent. This is absolutely crucial. It's in the book. It's plain as day in front of us. This is crucial. Otherwise, the person is just speaking into the air, Paul says. They're speaking mysteries to God. 
And the congregation receives no edification or building up whatsoever. Number three, there must be a limit. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn letting someone interpret. Tongue speaking should not go on indefinitely during a meeting and should never be disruptive or domineering. Now let's go back to verse 27. There should be two or three at most, each in turn. What does that mean? If a message in tongues is given, the next thing that is said should be the interpretation of that tongue. If you've been anywhere, and I've been there, and it's happened here, somebody's given a tongue, and then the next thing somebody said was, uh, you know, a word of exhortation or a reading from Scripture. If tongues is given, tongues must be interpreted, either by the person that gave it, so Paul said, right, in verse um, where are we here? Yeah, in verse 13, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret or that there would be an interpreter present. When that happens, when that criteria is met, then it should only happen two at most three times and each in turn. So a tongue, then an interpretation. If there's another tongue to add to it or different from it, then it can be spoken and interpreted. Tongue speaking shouldn't go on indefinitely during a meeting and shouldn't be disruptive or domineering. So listen, you might be in church and you might feel it well up within you and you may begin to speak in your heavenly language in church. That's fine. We probably won't even hear you anyway because it usually happens in worship and you know, you're kind of in your own zone. There's not gonna be police going around looking, am I speaking in tongues? no. But if it gets to the point where you're having such a connection with God that it kind of overtakes what we're doing, but there's no interpretation to it, then it's disruptive. It's domineering. It's taking over. And so we can be in control of our tongues, and we're going to learn that in a moment. Number four, this is clearly laid out in Scripture, and this is not my opinion. These aren't my rules. These are God's rules. Spoken to the Corinthians through the Apostle Paul. Number four, there must be no congregational tongue speaking. The entire congregation is not supposed to speak in tongues all at once. Verse 23, rather. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter or are present, will they not say, you're all out of your minds, you're all crazy? Now, we said at the beginning, we always want outsiders and unbelievers present in our meetings because we're evangelical. We want to preach the gospel, and we want the outsider to come in. We want the unbeliever to become a believer. And so we hope and pray that they're always here. Therefore, we can't all speak in tongues all at the same time. They'll think we're crazy. Now, I know some of you are going, I don't care if they think I'm crazy. You might not care. But God cares. God cares. God went through the trouble to reveal it. They'll think you're crazy. Not only that, but there's another reason why God says the whole congregation shouldn't be speaking in tongues all at once. Because those coming into the meeting for the first time will not be convicted of sin. 
they will not be, as Paul says, held accountable for their behavior. They won't have the secrets of their hearts laid bare. And they won't know that God is among us. Is God among us? Absolutely. If we're all here speaking in tongues and nobody has a clue, the outsider doesn't have a clue what we're saying, they're going to think we're crazy. And in verse 24 and 25, we read that there will be no conviction of sin. So unbelievers won't be able to become believers. No one will be held accountable for their behavior. Behavior, there won't be reproof and rebuke and exhortation because nobody will understand what's being said. And the secrets of the heart will not be laid bare. There'll be no ability to prophesy, to speak into people's lives. And the outsider will have no clue that God is among us. So there's a reason why we can't all be doing this all at once. The rule, for edification, the rule of edification always applies even when everyone understands what's going on and even when there are no believers, unbelievers present. So you say, okay, well, I can get together with my friends and we can all speak in tongues because there's no outsiders or unbelievers there. Okay, but if you're using the gift, the other rules still apply. So is it edifying everyone? Does everybody know what you're saying? Is it edifying everyone? Because the rule of edification always applies. Whenever you come together, Paul said, there's to be a hymn, right? An exhortation, an instruction, and a tongue with an interpretation. Let all be done for the strengthening of the church. Number five, quickly, it must be controlled. Amen. The one who speaks in tongues has control over themselves. They have control over their volume and their behavior. In other words, if you're speaking in tongues to yourself in the church service, you can speak in tongues to yourself. It doesn't have to be heard by everyone, even if you're really excited. And you can control your behavior in that you can wait, if you have a, a, a tongue to give, you can wait until an appropriate time to give it. Remember, tongues is never to be uh, uh, domineering uh, or disruptive. Speaking in tongues in a biblical sense has never consisted of a person being in some ecstatic trance or uncontrollable frenzy. Go back to the law of first mention. They were in the upper room and they were all in one accord. They were waiting, tarrying for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were doing. Then the Holy Spirit came and as the Spirit gave them utterance, they spoke in other tongues, the works and wonders of God in foreign languages and dialects. They weren't in an ecstatic trance or uncontrollable frenzy. Therefore, anyone who exercises the gift in an uncontrollable manner is not being led by God. Now, in verse 32 in the New Living Translation of, of chapter 14, we, we get what I think is a really good interpretation of this passage. I don't use New Living very often. But as I was looking through the translations of this passage, I, I wanted to find one that said it in a different way to convey the, the, the full meaning of what's going on in this text, because I've heard this text misquoted and misused so often. You've probably heard it said, if you listen to prophetic preaching and teaching, that you know, the, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, and you've, you've heard that taken out of context and used and misused to say that you know, only other people that call themselves prophets or have the gift of prophets are able to hold the other prophets accountable. That's 
That's not what it's being, being conveyed here in verse 32. This is a great translation. It goes like this. Remember that the people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can wait their turn. Amen. In other words, the spirits of the prophets. And what do spirits mean? The spirits means the doctrines, okay? Not your pneuma or not the Holy Spirit, but the doctrines, the words that you're given, the messages that you're given, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets themselves. In other words, you can control what you say, when you say it, and how loud you say it. You don't uh, make up the content of what you say, but you can control uh, when you say it and how you say it. Since the gift of tongues is supernatural, the person speaking tongues, as I just mentioned, can't control their, the content of their speech, but they can control when they start and when they stop speaking. Which brings us to our sixth rule, and we're getting close to the end. Trust me, you're being so amazing, so patient. I love you. Number six, it must be in order. Amen. It must be in order. Verse 33 and verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, all things should be done decently and in order. Not just some of the churches of the saints, not just the mainline churches, not just the, the liturgical churches must things be done in order. All the churches of the saints. If we consider ourselves a church of the saints, which I do, then all things must be done decently and in order. Now, we always pray in the prayer room, Lord, have your way. We've prepared an order. We've put together some things for us to do. We're all ready to go. I believe that's a good thing. God leads that preparation. But if we missed anything, if we misheard anything, or if anything has changed somewhere along the way, God, you move. You have your way. If you need to disrupt us, disrupt us. However, everything we do is still to be done decently and in order because God is not the author of confusion. So if God decides to disrupt our meeting, he's not gonna do it in the middle of bridge number three when we're all at our loudest. He's going to wait until there's a moment that is appropriate. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting and everybody's praying and it's just going and it's awesome and then all of a sudden it's just dead silence? That's God disrupting. That's God hushing us. So we yield to that sort of thing. When the gifts are properly operating in the church service, there won't be chaos. There'll be decency and order. And then finally, and I mentioned this before, of all the rules that I mentioned, even so, tongues must not be forbidden. Do not come away with the conclusion that I've now forbidden tongues at Liberty Church. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm just teaching you what the Bible says about how to practice it in the public gathering. We are relentlessly reforming our attitudes and actions to the standard of Scripture. Very clearly today, we've heard from 1 Corinthians 14 how to do this and how to use this in public. But it must not be forbidden. Even with all these parameters, Paul still says in verse 39 that tongues is not to be forbidden. He says, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Earnestly desire 
to prepare people for a very real future. Earnestly desire to speak the works and wonders of God. Earnestly desire to build up and edify one another because prophecy is the more loving gift because everyone can hear it and everyone can understand it. Desire to prophesy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. The gift of tongues with interpretation must be practiced. It must not be neglected. If and when the gift is practiced at liberty, then the rules that I just mentioned must apply. It must build up all believers. There must be an interpreter. There must be a limit. We can't all do it all at once. It must be done in a controlled way, in order, and must not be forbidden. We must strive to practice the gift of tongues within the parameters laid out in Scripture. Now, let's answer two criticisms first. Isn't this putting God in a box? No. It's God putting us in a box. And if God wants to put us in a box, he's more than able. He's sovereign. He's God. He's putting us in a box for our own protection. He's putting us in a box so that we won't take his name in vain. If we put God's name on some of the stuff that we've seen and done over the years, I don't want to be some of those people on Judgment Day who've put God's name on stuff, who've deliberately said, I don't like these parameters, so I'm going to take them and put them over here and do my own thing because I feel it. Dangerous, dangerous place to be. If God wants to put us in a box, let's get in the box. And then the other thing, isn't this quenching the spirit, Pastor Matt? I mean, you have rules, isn't this quenching the spirit? No, no, it's obeying the spirit. Big difference between quenching the spirit and obeying the spirit. Look at verse 37 of chapter 14. If If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So we've we've been in chapter 14 alone, okay? We haven't gone beyond the text. I'm not adding this text in to somewhere it doesn't belong. At the end of all the parameters and all the guidelines that Paul gives under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this. Now, if any of you think you're a prophet or if you consider yourself spiritual, You should acknowledge that the things I just wrote to you are a command of the Lord. It's not quenching the Spirit. It's obeying the Spirit. When we obey the Spirit, incredible, incredible things happen. I'm going to invite the team to come back because as we close, I want to invite you and inspire you. I want to invite you and inspire you. First, as a church, let us earnestly desire to prophesy. Let us earnestly desire to tell forth the works and wonders of God. How do we do that? Pick up this book and speak what it says. This is God's revelation. If you want to prophesy, pick up this book and speak it into your marriage Speak it into your children's lives. Speak it into your workplace. Speak it into the culture. Wherever you get a chance, prophesy. Speak this into whatever you're facing. 
when you uh, come in contact with someone from the church or someone comes to you because they need direction or guidance or they need help, prophesy to them. Speak God's word into the situation. It's the most loving gift. Let us earnestly desire to prophesy. Let us desire when we come together that unbelievers and outsiders would be convicted of sin. That they would be held accountable for their attitudes and actions. That the secrets of their heart would be disclosed. Not so that they would be embarrassed, but so that they would be edified. And let us desire to prophesy so that when the outsider and the unbeliever comes in and sees and hears what's going on in here, that they would be able to say, surely God is among us. Let us desire this so that everyone may be ready for a very real future when Jesus returns for those who belong to him. Remember, the the gift of prophecy is to prepare people for a very real future. And I want to remind you this morning that Jesus is coming again. Jesus will return. And if you're not alive to see it, then guess what? You're going to die. And so one way or another, you're going to stand before God. That's a very real future for each and every one of us. We will all, as it's been said, meet our maker one day. Whether you believe you evolved from the primordial ooze or you were fearfully and wonderfully made. However you feel or believe that humankind began, I want you to know today that you will stand before your maker, your creator, and your God. It's a very real future. And so I want to prophesy to you today, if you're an outsider and an unbeliever, I want to invite you, implore you to follow Jesus today. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved today. Confess that you are a sinner and that you need a savior and that you can't be your own savior. Only Jesus can save you. Confess that today, that you are a sinner and he is the savior. Not one of many saviors, but the savior, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to God. Run to the foot of the cross today. Run to the foot of the cross. As Charles Spurgeon said, when you get there, hide in the wounds of Jesus that bled and died for you. Hide in his nail-pierced hands and feet. Hide in his side. For those wounds were made there for you. You see, one day it's going to be too late to pray. I've heard from a lot of unbelievers that say, I'm just going to wait till I'm a little older. I'm just going to hang on a little longer. I'm going to wait till the end when I get sick. Then I'll call on the name of the Lord. One day, guys, it's going to be too late to call on the name of the Lord. C.S. Lewis said that when the author of the play steps on the stage, the play is over. And everyone's decision ends there. 
So if you decided to reject Jesus before he steps onto the stage, then your decision ends there. If you decided to accept Jesus, when he steps on the stage, your decision ends there. And wherever your decision ends determines where you'll spend an eternity. And I want to promise you today that you do not want to spend an eternity in hell. You do not want to spend an eternity in hell. Why? You don't know what it's like to live a life separated from God. You see, you might be an unbeliever today. You might be rejecting God as I speak. But you still don't know what it's like to exist completely separated from God, disintegrated from him. You see, your whole life is integrated with God, whether you acknowledge it or not. Every breath that goes through your lungs is a gift from him. Every time your heart beats, it's a gift from him. He has integrated and incorporated himself into your life and into the natural realm. You don't know what it's like to live separated from that. Hell is not a big party in a hot place. Hell is an eternity separated from the one who holds you together. Hell was not made for you. Make no mistake about that. But hell is where you will send yourself if you continue to reject God and die in your sins. Or if when Christ returns, you are still in your sins. If your sins aren't on Jesus today, they're still on you. Get your sins off of you as quickly, as quickly, as quickly as you can. And then finally, if you're a believer, I want to inspire you today to obey Jesus. If we consider ourselves spiritual, if we consider ourselves to be people who are used by the Spirit in the giftings of the Spirit, then we must strive to obey God in every area. Let us all strive to boldly and lovingly speak the truth to those around us. Let us surrender to the standard of Scripture today and let us be corrected by them if need be. Let us always continue to reform our attitudes and actions to the infallible, inerrant, and immutable standard. Infallible meaning it's perfect. Inerrant meaning there's no mistakes. And immutable meaning it doesn't change. Conform your life to this and you'll never go wrong. You think about that. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to invite you. If you heard my plea this morning, my, my prophetic and evangelical plea to believe on Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to step forward this morning and receive Jesus Christ. I don't always do this. I just feel prompted to. I don't know if there's somebody here that will even come forward, but I want to give the opportunity. If today, under the sound of my voice, you want to confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then I would invite you even now to step out. I don't want to embarrass you. No one's going to embarrass you. But if to, today's the day where you want to make your decision, then I want you to step out and meet me here at the front. 
Also today, if you have a need, we already did reach out to God. We already reached out to him and said, Lord, I want to receive from you. But maybe today you need prayer too, or you need to share something with somebody, or you want to pray into a situation with a fellow believer, then I want to invite you to come forward and our prayer team wants to minister to you today. I'm going to dismiss you in a moment if you have to go, but we don't need to rush out of here. There's lots of time. And so if you are making the decision to follow Christ today, I want you to come to me or Pastor Joel. If you're coming for ministry today, someone from our prayer team is going to find you. And if you need me, they'll come and get me. But we want to minister to each other today. This is called body ministry, where we're going to minister to each other. We're going to build each other up, bear one another's burdens and pray for each other. So the band's going to play and sing a little bit. They're going to do it softly. But we're going to call on the same God. The same God who did it for somebody else. He'll do it for you today too. We're going to call on him. The God who doesn't change. The God who has always been a healer. Always been a deliverer. Always been a savior. Always been a chain breaker. Always been a restorer. We're going to call on him today. So if after I dismiss you, uh, you need to go, then I would invite you, if you want to visit, to step out of the back doors, visit in the lobby, in the cafe, the coffee's hot, or out in the parking lot. But if you need ministry today, after everyone leaves, ushers, I know you'll do it, just close the doors. If you need ministry today, we want to minister to you. And so if you have to go until the next time we meet like this, May the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And don't ever forget, Jesus only, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. He will never, ever fail you. Lean on his everlasting arm, put your hand in his hand, and walk through this life. So if you have to go, God bless you. You're dismissed. If you want to call in the name of the Lord to be saved or you need ministry of any kind, you can meet me here at the altar with our prayer team. And we want to minister to you today. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.